Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Okay, so uh, we are in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to pick up in verse 62. But before I do that, you can turn there, put your finger there. I want to read to you a little bit of Luke chapter 23. Now remember, these four, these, uh, all four Gospels give us information about the resurrection of Christ, crucifixion of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. I'd highly recommend that you read Matthew 27 and 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke 23 and 24, and John 20 and 21, and kind of read them. And a very fun study, you might want to do this particular week, is you know go online, print out those, uh, each of those chapters, or take your Bible, photocopy each of those chapters, and then just for fun, try to put the story all together as one story. It's so interesting, at times it gets a little confusing, when did this happen and that happen, but it's a neat, I think, holy time to just kind of dig into your word in that particular way, But because as you read what Luke has to say about it from his vantage point and what Mark has to say about it, it really just gives you a greater insight into all of the events that took place between Friday afternoon and, and Sunday afternoon, so to speak. And so let me just read just a little bit from Luke 23. I'm going to start in verse 50. It says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was good and a righteous man who had not consented to the decision of the council and their action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid Jesus in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath was beginning and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So Luke just gives us a little bit more information about the way in which Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for the body of Jesus, the way that the ladies happened to be there when the body was being taken down. We know from other places in the scripture that Nicodemus also assisted Joseph in this process. So these two men, these two ladies, how they kind of take this funeral procession over to where the grave, Joseph's uh, tomb happened to be, his family tomb, and notice that, that it said, I don't, I don't think we have the, do we have the verse up there that I just read? Was it up there? And so if you notice that on there, it spoke of this fact that the women saw how and where the body was laid. And that's going to become significant, part of the reason why I chose to read it to you. But you have these two secret disciples. Joseph of Arimathea, as the passage I read, told us that he is a member of the council a good and righteous man who did not consent to the decision and the action of the rest of the council. So that's Joseph of Arimathea. And we also know, John tells us, that Nicodemus as well. We know a little bit about Nicodemus. John chapter 3 tells us Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. So certainly a key fella uh, in the nation of Israel in Jerusalem there. And that he had come to Jesus by night, at night, so that nobody else would know. And he asked Jesus some questions. He was trying to discover some things. And so these two men now make the decision that they're going to show their loyalty. They're going to publicly declare their devotion for Jesus by coming and identifying with him and asking for the body of Jesus. It's it's a rather interesting thing to do because there's absolutely no benefit for them doing this. Had they done it before, there there was always this thing, well, someday this man's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be ruling. But he's dead now, as far as they know. He's dead. There's no reason for them to publicly link themselves to this Jesus. But it's as if they finally said, well, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do it. And so they go to Pilate. They ask. In the Luke passage, it, it tells us that Pilate is, well, is he dead already? And he, he inquires, and yes, he is actually dead. And so they, they give him the body. Then it says there that in Luke 23, 53, he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. And we can only imagine, and I think it's fair to say this, I can't imagine it would be any different, that very carefully, very lovingly, they removed Jesus from the cross. Maybe they took the whole pole out of the ground and put it back down or however they did it, and they very carefully wrap his body in the shroud. 
it says there. Matthew then goes on to tell us, after having laid the body in a tomb, Matthew 27.60 says that they rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and then they went their particular way. Now, again, it's in, the Luke, it's in Luke's gospel, before really diving into today's passage, that we learn this verse in Luke 23.55, that the women who had come with him from Galilee, they followed, they saw the tomb, and they saw how his body was laid. We know who those women are. It's Mary Magdalene, and it's someone that is referred to as the other Mary. These two women are two of the many women that had gathered at the crucifixion. And so we know that most of Jesus' disciples, almost all of Jesus' male disciples, took off and ran. It even seems that John took off and ran and then came back, it seems to imply. And he's there at the foot of the cross when Jesus kind of motions to Mary and he says, woman, your son, and he motions to John and he says, you know, man, your mother, uh, and so on. So it seems John left but came back. But all the other disciples were, weren't there, weren't present, except for a large number of women, two of whom we know their name. Matthew 27, 55 said, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. And so the picture that seems to develop is that after Jesus had died, that slowly the crowd began to leave the, the, where they had gathered at the foot of the cross, where they had gathered at, Ga- at Galilee. But these two Marys, it seems, linger there. They remain there. Now remember, they're from out of town. They had come down from Galilee with Jesus. There's, maybe there's sort of this sense, well, where are we going to go? Where else can we go? And so they just remain there at the foot of the cross. And then Joseph and Nicodemus come back. Maybe the women are off on the side. And they're, you know, they're perked up. Their interest is perked up. They're watching it. And they see the way that these two members of the council lovingly are treating the body of Jesus. And so perhaps they make their way over now to, to them and say, can we help in some way? And so now these four begin to remove Jesus' body, wrap it uh, in the linen cloth that it speaks of there. And then they essentially develop a, a makeshift funeral procession. And they just began to make their way a very short distance, not very far at all, from where the crucifixion occurred to a neighboring garden that is there. And again, it's in that garden that Joseph of Arimathea had already uh, had a funeral plot, a family funeral plot, uh, or a burial plot, uh, carved out of the stone for his family. And again, the women see that. Now, I want to show you a couple of photos. And so we may have to hit the lights again so you can actually see them that I can draw your attention to. You'll notice in this particular photo, this would be the opening of a grave. This is probably not the grave Jesus was buried in. Uh, But this would be the opening of it there. They would hewn out the stone inside. They would essentially create a cave of of sorts there. There might be a few different rooms that would be in there. And a stone like this would be rolled across to the front uh, of the stone. And that's how they would seal it. So in our passage where it says the the stone was moved, that's what it's referring to. Now, it might look like this, sort of like a millstone that is perfectly round. Or it might just be simply a large boulder. And the large boulder would just be... rolled over to close entrance in there. Do we have the other stone or picture as well? If you look at this here, this thing here is important. Now, this would not have been there. This is the, the tomb that many people visit in Jerusalem that um, some, a lot of people have concluded this might be where Jesus was buried. It was unearthed not too long ago, 30, 40 years ago. And so this was added later. We go here on our particular tour. You can kind of go in. This just makes it a little easier to get in there Um, safer for people to go in. But what I want to draw your attention to is this thing here. This, what they do is outside of these tombs, they create sort of a channel. And it's like a curb, essentially, that is raised up. And the stone would be on the inside of that. And then you can roll it. And it's not going to go forward. It's not going to go away from there. But you can roll it in front of the door. And so when it talks about how the stone was rolled across the opening, it would have been rolled in that little channel area. Does that make sense? All right, now you get to see it. Hopefully you'll still come with us to Israel despite having seen the pictures. I just wet your whistle a little bit there. All right, so that, that's that. Now, Luke goes on to tell us, 
uh, with the tomb closed up, that Joseph, Nicodemus, the two women, they leave there and they go wherever it is they're staying. Joseph and Nicodemus will go to their home. They live in Jerusalem. Mary and Mary and uh, the others, they'll go to the hotel or family friend that they're staying in uh, because, again, they're from out of town. And as we see, they go back to wherever it is they're staying and they begin to prepare spices and ointments. Now, they're going to use those spices and ointments to prepare Jesus' body properly for burial. They don't have time to prepare it on that Friday afternoon properly, but they're going to come back after the Sabbath, they're going to come back on Sunday, and they're going to prepare his body properly for burial. Luke 23 tells us they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They'll come back after the Sabbath. Now remember, the Sabbath for the Jews is on Saturday. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, which means they'll come back on Sunday. All right, let's read our passage for today, starting in Matthew 27, verse 62. It says, Now the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the temple to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people... He has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. And so they went, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now we've learned this, that the day of preparation is actually the first day of Passover for the Jews. So that's going to be, in that particular year, that was going to be on a Friday. The next day would be Saturday, which was their Sabbath day. And the women weren't allowed to do any work on that day. One thing I find very interesting to note is that while the women that we looked at a moment ago, they're at their abode obeying the law of the Sabbath by not doing any work. Notice there it says in Luke 23, 56, that they rested according uh, to the commandment. So while the women are back resting according to the commandment, you have the religious leaders on the Sabbath not only working, but also violating their own customs and tradition and coming into contact with a defiled Gentile, that is, with Pilate. And so the women are home resting, trying to obey the Sabbath law. These men who are the religious leaders are in complete violation of the Sabbath law. And as we see, in, again, in Matthew 27, they come to Pilate. They say, sir, this imposter said he would rise after three days, and so we have to be very careful here. Order the tomb to be made secure, lest they come, steal the body away, and say that he has risen from the dead. It's interesting, that which the disciples seem to have forgotten, that Jesus would rise again from the dead, these unbelieving religious leaders are very much aware of, that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. And so they said, this imposter said, after three days I will rise. Now, their solution... To this, state, to this idea that Jesus would rise again from the dead is to order the tomb to be made, for, made sure, seal it up. Now, we don't know if their thinking is they were really concerned that somebody would come and steal the body or let's seal it up so that Jesus can't get out and he can't rise from the dead. We don't exactly know what is going on in their thinking here, but at least that's what they present to Pilate. And so they decide they'll secure the tomb and to do so, what that means is they're going to put the full authority of the Roman government at work to keep anything from happening, or so they thought. And so they're going to seal the tomb. Now, sealing the tomb uh, involved taking a rope, stretching it across that, that rock that I said they rolled over. We have a picture here. Here we go again. How about the lights again? One day we're going to have a nice LED thing here. But if you can, can you get that light too, please? If you see that rope that goes across here, I've got to climb up. What they would have done is where it attaches to the wall, they would have put uh, a big glob of hot wax, and that wax would stick to the wall, and then the rope would stick in it, and they would do that on both sides of the rock, and then they would press the insignia or the seal of the Roman Caesar. All right, you can get the lights again here. And that's what it meant by sealing the stone. And so if anybody comes along and tries to move the stone, the seal would be broken. And the punishment for breaking the seal by the Roman government, the punishment was death. 
And so it's, it's not like it's a strong seal. Oh, I can't move it. I wish I could, but I can't. It's just the authority of the Roman government says you better not come and touch this rock because you move the rock, the seal breaks, and you're going to be executed for it. And so this is what the chief priests, the Pharisees, this is what they're requesting, where it says that the tomb might be made secure. Verse 65, Pilate agrees. He says, all right, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. And so as it says in 66, they went, they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, it's interesting that God in his wisdom will actually use this decision this request and this, uh, the granting of that request by Pilate, that he will actually use this to accomplish his, his purposes. Because of the fact that the tomb was sealed and that the guards were set outside of the tomb, we now have witnesses to the resurrection. Had nobody sealed it and nobody, no guards were set out front, and the women just came back on the Sunday morning, and the stone was rolled away, and they look in and there's no body there, well, what would you conclude happened? Well, you can conclude anything happened because there were no witnesses to what actually happened. But the fact that there was a guard there and that the tomb was actually uh, sealed, we now have witnesses. God in his wisdom opened up the opportunity that we would know exactly what happened. And he used what they meant for evil, he used for good, as he tends to do so often. Amen? Let's move on. Verse, chapter 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the, women, the woman, uh, the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings, and they came up. Uh, and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there we will see them. And so as I pointed out, Jewish law, it prevented the Jews from working on Saturday, on their Sabbath day. And so as we saw previously, the ladies then, they, uh, they can't come back on that Saturday. They've got to wait a whole day before they can come back. They, can't, they have to come back on Sunday. But here, as we see in the verse, verse 1, it's after the Sabbath. It's toward the dawn of the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they return to the tomb. They're now going to more properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. Luke chapter 24 gives us a little more detail in what that's going to look like. And so you could look there on your own. Now, it's Mark that informs us that as they're making their way to this tomb, and again, we don't know how far away they are, if they're in Jerusalem, if they're in Bethany, the neighboring town, but as they're making their way to where this tomb is, that they sort of have this realization. Now, they don't know about the ceiling of the tomb, but they do know that there's a stone in front of it. And so they sort of have this realization of, how you feeling? Strong? Are you going to move the stone? I don't think I can move the stone by myself. You know, this, and that they don't really know, how, who's going to move the stone amongst us? And I imagine they figure, well, we've come this far. We'll figure it out when we get there. And, and they exactly do. And so it turns out not to be a problem. Look at verse 2. It says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Now pay, pay careful attention to that. It's not the earthquake that moves the stone. It's an angel that moves the stone. And apparently in conjunction with the stone being rolled away, the earth begins to quake. But it's not an earthquake that moves the stone. As it says in verse 2, an angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls away the stone. Now, he rolls away the stone not to let Jesus out. Again, the chief priests, they may have thought, well, let's keep a seal over it. This way, Jesus can't get out even if he does rise from the dead. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But this angel isn't moving the stone to let Jesus out. And we'll see this, that the angel moves the stone so that the disciples can go in, that the disciples can come in. When he talks, when the angel speaks with the disciples, with the women, says to them, go ahead and look. He says, he's not here. Go ahead, take a look. 
and they look in and they see where he had been laid and so on. And so uh, the whole purpose of it, and again, is not to let Jesus out, but to let them in. We, we know that Jesus, a little bit later, John chapter 20, when he will go and visit the disciples in Jerusalem, it says he will come to this room that was all locked up. And nobody could get into this room unless you go to that door and you knock and they decide who's going to come in. But it says that Jesus passed through the walls. He could have passed through uh, the stone rock uh, of the, the cave that he was in or the door or whatever, but he didn't need to. Uh, they don't need to move the stone for him to do so. He could get out at any time. Now, Matthew continues, verse 4, he says, For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So here's this angel sitting on the stone, and it says, For fear of the angel, the guards tremble and become like dead men. Now, these are hardened Roman soldiers. They had been in the midst of the battle. They had seen people die. They had risked their lives before. Uh, They've seen it all. And yet, in in the presence of this angel, it says they fear and they tremble. It says that they become like dead man. It's a word which means to become lifeless and without motion. And so either they, they faint or they go into shock and they can't move at all, but the guards are essentially powerless sitting there in the presence of this angel. And it's not as if the angel, you know, like, boo, or something. You know, it's not as if the angel tries to scare him. It's just the presence of the angel scares them. But what I find interesting is while these men are freaked out, fear, trembling, fainting, shock, whatever it is, while they're freaked out, the women, though there's a a level of fear, don't seem to have any problem interacting with this angel. And certainly it has something to do with where they are in their faith. And so they interact fine with this angel. Verse 5 says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And I think the fact of the resurrection will have that effect on people. That the resurrection will bring comfort to the believer. Because the believer realizes that the grave has indeed been conquered. But the truth of the resurrection will terrify the unbeliever who will realize that they remain powerless to overcome the penalty of their sin. Same event can have vastly different effects on different people. And so they tremble, but these women communicate. Now, the, the angel is going to tell the women six things. Notice this in, in two or three verses here, starting in verse 5. The first thing the angel will say is, do not be afraid. And so though his presence alone causes the Roman guards to tremble and become like dead men, Again, the women seem quite comfortable. And he says to them, do not be afraid. Secondly, the angel says, I know that you seek Jesus. Thirdly, notice he says he's not here. And that the reason he's not here, the fourth thing the angel says to them, is because he has risen. And so despite the fact that Jesus had told his disciples repeatedly that he was going to be crucified, that he would be raised on the third day, it's quite certain that the last thing these women expected to hear is that he is risen. And so when the angel said he is not here, it's more likely they would have bought into the idea he is not here because Joseph of Arimathea came and took him and brought him to another location. That would have been more believable for them. That's more what they expected. He is not here for the Roman government moved him to a more secure location. That makes sense. He is not here because the religious leaders decided, whatever, that they decided. Each of those would have been a little more expected by these women. But instead, what they hear is, he is not here because he has risen. Now, immediately, their hearts begin to buy into this. It's exactly what they should have expected because that's what Jesus had said. Even the angel will say that. That's the, uh, the fifth thing there, as he said. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Now, the angel continues to tell the women some more things. Notice it says, come, see the place where he lay. You don't believe me? Take a look for yourself. You know, and so they peek in. Again, the stone not rolled away so that Jesus could get out, could get out, but rolled away so that the disciples could get in. And then these women, the same women that had watched Jesus be crucified just a day or so earlier, now have the great privilege 
of being invited in to see, essentially witness the resurrection and to look in and see that. The scripture says, no greater love is a man than this, than, than a man would lay down his life for his friend. And we know that God demonstrated no greater love for the people that would believe on him as children than that he would give his own son on our behalf. The cross is magnificent, but I'll, I'll throw this out there to you. If it wasn't for the resurrection, the cross wouldn't have meaning. There, there'd be nothing good from the cross. It would be a horrible end to what began as a wonderful story, that the one that we loved, the one that we were following, it was such a great man. Look at the great things that he did, and then they killed him. And if that's how we showed the movie, we'd walk out of there. What a horrible movie. It ends that way? This is terrible. Or whatever. It's the resurrection which gives the cross the significance of what the cross actually is. Without the resurrection, there would be no guarantee that Christ's payment for our sin was indeed accepted by God. Somebody has said this, that the cross is the payment, the resurrection is the receipt. And without the cross, excuse me, without the resurrection, the cross is powerless. That's why I think it is so incredibly sad that there are even some, quote, uh, and I'm not trying to be a jerk in saying it, quote-unquote Christians that want to discount the necessity of the resurrection or even concede that there was no bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that is incredibly sad because, again, the Scripture makes it very, very clear that without the resurrection, the cross really has no meaning. It was just a nice act by a nice man that he would do that. We stand with the Apostle Paul who declared in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We must have the resurrection. And the scripture is clear that it occurred. Now the angel invites the women in to see the evidence of it. Now finally, after they peek in, the angel says, now go quickly and tell his disciples. And I think that order of things is so significant. First come and see, then go and tell. Because it's not until we, get, we first get a clear glimpse at the work of Christ on the cross and of the empty grave that testifies to the fact that that work was accepted by our Heavenly Father that we even have anything worth telling to people. So first we come and see, then we go and tell. First we come and see that Christ has borne our sin and that he has risen again in victory, then we have something that we can go and tell to others. It's then that we can go and tell others that their sin can be forgiven. It's then that we can go and tell others that the chain of sinful habits can be broken. Whether they're sinful habits which are, so to speak, in good standing, where nobody really looks at it, well, it's not such a big deal. Or there's these addictive uh, behaviors which are so self-destructive that they can be broken. They can be broken because of the resurrection. But first we must see the crucifixion. It's then that we can tell others the chains of sinful habits have been broken. It's then that we can tell others there's freedom in Christ to walk in the newness of life. First come and see, then go and tell. And so the women do just that. Verse 8 continues, they depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they run and tell the disciples. Now, it's while they're going. In verse 8 says they run to tell the disciples. It's while they're going that the most remarkable thing happens for these women. Look at verse 9. It says, and behold, Jesus met them as they were going, and he said, greetings. Sounds like an alien. Greetings, earthling. Uh, it, actually, it's just a, it's a comfortable way of saying hello, um, a, a familiar greeting. How you all doing? Or howdy if you're in the South, like my friend went to school in the South. Uh, anyway, it goes on. They came up, they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. I think it's y'all, not howdy. You didn't say howdy, right? <laughs> okay, she's looking at me. I never said howdy once in my life. But if Jesus was from the South, he would have said howdy here. All right, it's just a familiar greeting. He says to them, greetings. They came up, they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, it's as they're going that they have an encounter with Jesus. As they go in obedience to the angel's command, then they encounter Jesus. And it's no different in our lives today, 2,000 years later. It's as we go forward in obedience 
that we encounter the Lord in a greater way and more of his will is revealed to us. Charles Spurgeon said, saints running in obedience are likely to be met by Jesus. It's as we walk in obedience that we encounter him. We say, Lord, I, I, I want to know your will for my life. And Jesus' response is, walk in my ways and my will will be revealed to you. It's as we're going in obedience that it's revealed. It's as we do things that the Lord has already told us to do that we discover him and the additional things that he would have us to do from that point on. And so seeing the Lord, Matthew tells us that these women, they've gone in obedience. Jesus has revealed himself to them. Matthew tells us they fall at his feet, notice there, and they begin to worship him. That word worship there means to worship in adoration as God. And so they fall at his feet and they begin to worship him as God. They're not just bowing down that, you know, you might do to someone's important. Or in some cultures, you might do such a thing like that. They are worshiping him. Now, what's interesting is we see plenty of examples in the New Testament. I don't recall if in the Old necessarily, but certainly I know so in the New Testament. We see plenty of examples in the New Testament where people would fall down before God's servants. So people like the apostles or whomever, they would come on a scene, they would be doing things, they'd be remarkable things, and the people would mistakenly, erroneously, they would fall down as if to worship that person. You just came on a scene and healed, well, you must be a god, and they worship him. And in each instance, whether it's an angel, whether it's a servant, like a a human being, apostle, or whatever, they say, no, don't do that. You need to get up. And they point people to God. Here now is Jesus... And these women fall down, grab a hold of his legs, and they begin to worship him. And notice Jesus doesn't stop them. It would be highly inappropriate and even sinful if Jesus were not worthy of worship to receive their worship. And yet again, notice he makes no effort to stop them because it's highly appropriate to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they do that. Now, it's a tremendous honor and privilege, certainly, for these women. They were the first to encounter the risen Lord. And, you know, sometimes I think about it, I wonder why these two women were chosen. You know, are these, like, if we were plotting this out, are these the people you would pick to do it? Wouldn't you pick, like, the chief priest or something? You know, they have this meeting, and all of a sudden, Jesus, I'm back. You thought you could get rid of me, you can't. You know, that would send a message. Or go to Pilate, go to Caesar or whatever. You probably heard about me. You know, here I am. And then, but yet they choose two women. Now, it's interesting. In that day, a a woman's testimony in a court of law was not even accepted. Well, we have plenty of witnesses. Come on in, ladies. What do you mean? We can't accept that. They wouldn't even accept a woman's testimony And yet they're the two, or that gender, the women, are the ones that the Lord chooses to reveal himself to first. I find it quite interesting. And so I'm sure there's a number of reasons why, if we were making this story up, let's say the disciples made this whole thing up, and they got together and they said, all right, let's come up with a good story, you know, so that this Christianity thing doesn't come to an end with the loss of Jesus or whatever. They would not have picked women. They would have said, it was Peter that saw him. It was Paul that saw him. They would have come up with a different story than two women whose testimony isn't even accepted. And so it speaks to the fact, to the truth of what occurred there, that they just very honestly say, this is what happened. There were two women that were out there, and I know you won't believe their testimony, but that's the way it happened, so there you have it. So there's probably a number of reasons, but I think the simplest reason for why these two women are chosen to see the risen of Christ first is because these two women were there. These two women were there. If there were 50 guys that came, then those 50 guys would have been the first to see it. But these two women are the first ones, uh, or the ones that happen to be there. And I would say this principle to you. Something happens when God's children show up. Something happens when God's children show up. You want to be used by the Lord? Well, then show up. I used to love what Brother Kevin Barber used to always say is grab a glove and get in the game. Show up. Be in the game. And you're going to find you make that great play in the game as opposed to the guy who never even came. And so something happens when God's children show up, certainly more than when they don't show up. So some might say, well, God doesn't speak to me in his word. 
I think a very good response to that is, well, let me ask you, do you regularly read his word? Well, no. Well, then that's why he doesn't speak to you in his word. You got to read it. Some might say, well, I never get anything out of church. Nobody here, of course. But other people might say that in other locations. A response might be, let me ask you, do you regularly go to church? Well, no, I I don't regularly go. Well, I, I wonder why you never get anything out of it. Some might say, God never uses me in service to him. The response might be, well, do you regularly serve him now? Well, no, I'm just waiting for a big opportunity. You ain't going to get it. Already, Regularly are you serving him now? Again, something happens when we show up. And these women, they come, they discover that truth. And, I, and my prayer is that we would discover that truth. Here we are 2,000 years later, but the same principle applies and it works in our lives to, today. And so these women, they show up. And they're used to communicate the greatest message that has ever been communicated. That our sins can be forgiven because they have been paid for. And I know they've been paid for because I have a receipt. And the receipt is the resurrection of Christ. Notice Jesus says, go and tell the disciples. Mark will add that Jesus says, or that it's a, Jesus says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Mark tells us that. Jesus adds those two words. These two Marys, they're instructed to go and tell the same men who just days earlier had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. And that they're to go and tell Peter, who denied that he even knew the Lord with curses. And Jesus says, go and tell these guys. Despite their having failed, Jesus longs to see them again. And so he tells these women to instruct the disciples to go to Galilee where he will meet them. You'd expect him to say, almost with a little bit of anger, get the guys together because I got some talking to do to some of them. You know, you'd almost expect something like that. I'm going to give, you know, a little bit of business. Somebody's getting a spanking. All right, these guys here. And yet that's not at all what the Lord goes to do. Luke chapter 24 says that when he comes on the scene, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. And so he comes into their presence and all of that is past. And he says to them, peace. Well, there shouldn't have been peace in their relationship. There was a problem between them. They had denied him, even with curses. And yet the Lord enters in. How altogether different our Lord and Savior is, isn't he? Different from you and I, certainly. Certainly me. Now, again, I encourage you, read through the other Gospels because you get kind of the fuller picture. In doing so, you'll you'll notice there's a number of additional events that Matthew doesn't include for us in his particular Gospel. Events that are associated with Jesus' resurrection in that little period of time uh, that is there. Some of the additional ones, again, you read it for yourself. But in John chapter 20, we learn that initially when Mary encounters Jesus, that she thinks he's the gardener. And so she, you know, she says some things, and finally he says, Mary. And I suspect he had a way of saying Mary, you know, that was like between them or whatever, and she knows immediately it's the Lord. And then she falls down and grabs his feet. Luke chapter 24 says that Jesus appears to two disciples as they made their way to the town of Emmaus that they're walking to the town of Emmaus, they're kind of down, they're dejected, and then Jesus says, what's going on, guys? What are you sad about? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what has happened? Fill me in. Tell me. And he begins to minister to those guys. Luke 24, John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus, remember in the Matthew passage, says, go to Galilee where I will see them. Luke 24, John chapter 20 says that Jesus goes uh, and encounters them in Jerusalem. Luke, or John chapter 20 tells us a second time he encounters them in Jerusalem. This time Thomas is with them. And so I can't help but wonder if the women come back to Jesus or to the disciples and say, we saw the risen Lord and he said, go to Galilee and there he will meet you. And they don't go. And then Jesus said, well, I'm going to have to go to them and goes and finds them in Jerusalem. I can't help but wonder if something like that is actually going on. And then John chapter 21, such a remarkable passage of Scripture, particularly if you've ever failed in your walk with the Lord, if you've ever had that sinful situation, that sinful moment that even shocks you, I can't believe I got involved in that. John chapter 21 is such a wonderful passage of Scripture to return to. It's where Jesus sits on the Sea of Galilee with Peter, and he restores Peter, and he ministers to Peter. 
a beautiful passage, but we learn that as well. But for Matthew's purposes, he simply gives us a part of the story that these two Marys, that they go to the tomb early on a Sunday morning. Their intention was to prepare the body of Jesus for burial, and in reality, they end up seeing the risen Lord. Now, Jesus is not the first person to ever be risen from the dead in the Bible. Old Testament, we learn uh, a number of cases there in the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah is used to raise the widow of Zarephath. In the New Testament, John chapter 11, we know the familiar story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Luke chapter 7, a widow's son is raised back to life. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, Jairus' daughter is raised back to life. So Jesus is not the first person to be raised from the dead in the Bible. And so that forces the question, well, what's so great then about the resurrection of Jesus? What sets apart Jesus' coming back to life from all of these other people coming back to life? Because Jairus' daughter's resurrection is not going to give you salvation. And Lazarus' resurrection will not affect your eternity of whether you go to heaven or hell. So what's so great about Jesus' resurrection? Well, the difference between all of those other resurrections, Lazarus and the other folks there, is that they were raised back to life in the same bodies that they had previously been living in, a day earlier, four days earlier, whatever it may be, and they eventually went on to die again in those bodies. And so a more proper term, perhaps, than resurrection might be resuscitation. And so you come across a person, you know, they flatlined or whatever, but you do your CPR and you bring them back to life. You didn't resurrect that person. The person was resuscitated. That might be a more proper term to describe those other situations here. Jesus, on the other hand, was resurrected to a new body based on his old body, but certainly not the same as his old body. His old body couldn't pass through walls, but his new body could. It's not the same, and it was never to die again. That's the sort of body that those who die in Christ as believers will be raised to as well. A new body equipped for heaven, so to speak. And so it's a different situation altogether. Some resuscitated, Jesus resurrected to a new body. Now, quickly I'll conclude with this. One final account this morning. This is uh, verse 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money, they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, again, earlier, they trembled like dead men. They, they uh, were in shock, they fainted, whatever it may be. Now they've revived. And like the women, they go to report what they have taken in. The women go to the disciples. These guys are going to go to the chief priests. Matthew tells us that they made their way into Jerusalem. They find the chief priest, and they tell them all that had taken place. And they begin to recount about the angel, the stone being rolled away, the earthquake, the empty tomb that was there. Now, these guys have been impacted by what they have experienced because they don't work for the chief priest. They work for the Roman government. But for whatever reason, they decide to go to the chief priest to explain what happened. I can't help but think that they go to the chief priest to find out what happened. This, this is the facts. What does it mean? What happened here? Now, Sadly, rather than being given an answer, ideally it would have been, he actually was the Messiah. And he rose from the dead just as he said. We were terribly wrong. Rather than hearing that, they're sold a lie. And so the chief priest, not even looking into it and saying, my goodness, we were so terribly wrong. Instead, they dig in their heels and they come up with an elaborate plan to hide the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Again, in verse 12 and 13, they take counsel amongst themselves. They come up with a large sum of money, a sufficient sum of money, and they say, here's the story you're going to tell. Tell people the disciples came and stole the body. And so these guys, they're paid a sufficient sum of money to lie about what occurred, to tell the, disciples, tell the people his disciples came, stole the body away. You can't help but see the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders, that they would so callously reject the truth that is once more put there in front of them. And believe me, the Lord would have forgiven them 
for all that occurred just a couple of days earlier if they had just simply said we were wrong. And some of them will go on to do so. We'll learn that in the book of Acts, that a number of the members of the council would come to the faith. And yet, though, the group here as a whole, they callously reject the truth because it doesn't fit the narrative that they had. They come up with a sufficient sum of money and they give that to the guards to lie. They bribe the guards to lie. Now, it would have to be a sufficient sum of money because failure to guard their post, as they had done, they didn't guard their post. Now, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. When angels come, it's kind of hard to do so. Uh, but they, they fail in their particular duty. To fail in their duty was punishable by execution. So even though they're the guards and, and so on, the penalty for them as guards failing their particular duty was to be executed. And so it seems as if some of them are saying, you could give me a gazillion dollars, I'm not doing it because they're going to kill me. What's the money going to do for me? And so they, they quickly add there in verse 14, don't worry. If this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him, we'll keep you out of trouble. And so eventually the, the guys are convinced and they begin now to tell this lie. They take it and it begins to spread among the Jews. Now here, just I'll end with this. It's a ridiculous story. It's a ridiculous story that they would peddle that the disciples came and stole the body. Let me just give you a couple of instances. Number one, are we to believe that each one of these guards fell asleep simultaneously, but that could happen, but that none of them were awakened by the sound of a large, heavy millstone being rolled away from the tomb's entrance? So that's the story you want us to believe, okay? Number two, if indeed the body was taken as the soldiers slept, how come none of those soldiers have been executed for dereliction of duty? Number three, if all the guards slept, how is it that they know that it was the disciples that took the body of Jesus? It could have been anyone that took it, but they're pretty certain that it was the disciples. Number four, if the story is true, why the need to bribe the, the, the guards? And number five, if the disciples stole the body, why is it they took time there in the grave to unwrap the body and leave the grave clothes behind, as it says in Luke 24 and John chapter 20? My vast knowledge of breaking and entering is you get in, you get out as quick as possible. And so why did they take the time to unwrap the body? You just apply a little bit of thought to the argument, and you realize there's a whole myriad of reasons as to why the story of these guards can't be true. The truth is, Jesus was raised back to life and that he appeared to many witnesses. Paul will tell us that he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul will even add there, many of them are still alive. Go find them. You can talk to them and they'll tell you what they saw. The truth is that Jesus was raised back to life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps one of the most analyzed events in the history of the world. And yet, again and again, it, and we know again and again, it stands the scrutiny as people analyze it to try and disprove it. It's interesting, repeatedly people have set out to disprove the resurrection and instead end up convincing themselves that it's the most true thing they ever have looked into. There's a few examples. Josh McDowell. Many of you are familiar with Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell's been in, the, the, in Christian ministry or whatever, 40, 50 years. But Josh McDowell wasn't always a believer. And very intelligent guy, smart guy, set out once and for all, I'm going to disprove this resurrection and convince all these people. And he began to dig into it. And in the process of digging into it, he convinced himself to the truth of the resurrection. There's two resources you might want to look at. One is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Evidence Demands a Verdict is perhaps one of the hardest books I've ever read in my entire life. I'll admit to you I skimmed a lot of it because I didn't understand most of it or whatever. Very small, tiny little writing. It's about that thick or whatever. And he goes through every single thing that he looked into and how he convinced himself that the resurrection is true. For those of you that are more on my level, more than a carpenter, he also wrote. And that's sort of the, I don't want to say dumbed down, the watered down version that's a little more accessible to people like me and some of you as well. So evidence demands a verdict. More than a carpenter. Look at those particular books. There's another instance, a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was like a, a columnist, a newspaper writer for somewhere in Chicago, I believe it was. And his wife had become a Christian. 
And Lee decided, I'm go- he was an investigative journalist, I'm going to investigate the resurrection, disprove the resurrection, and convince my silly wife of the foolishness of her thinking. And so he began to dig into it. He wrote the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Christ. And it's interesting, same exact thing. As he began to dig into it, he convinced himself to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to send out to you, if you're on our e-news list, we're going to send out to you a link right after service today. You should get it when you, well, about noon or so. And in there, it's Lee Strobel sharing his testimony. It's about 40 minutes in length. Lee is an excellent speaker. He's engaging. You, you shouldn't have any trouble listening or watching uh, his particular there. But he shares his story of the lessons he learned and that he has written in the book, The Case for the Resurrection. But if you don't feel like reading, you can just listen for 45 minutes, and I think you'd be encouraged when you receive it. But my friends, there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. And that empty tomb bears witness to the fact that he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. As I said earlier, the cross is the payment, the resurrection is the receipt. And because of the resurrection, we know that Christ's payment on the cross was accepted. That's how we know that our sins have been forgiven and that we can enter into the presence of a holy God. I'll close with these words. They're from the Apostle Peter. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of that in those verses there are because of the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection, and we rejoice in the truth of it. Amen, friends? Let's uh, close in prayer and a song of worship. Let's bring our worship team up. Father, we thank you for this truth. Lord, I I do pray for us as believers, Lord, for those of us here that are, Lord, that the, uh, the reality of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, Lord, would be birthed in our hearts, um, Lord, you just cause our hearts to enlarge, to understand in a greater way the truth of the resurrection. Not that it occurred, because we know that it did, and evidence bears proof to that. But because it occurred, how that impacts us here 2,000 years later. We rejoice in that. So cause the the truth of it to really just uh, grow. Uh, our understanding of what it means. We ask in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.